0: Welcome to New Books and Biography, I'm Oline Eaton. As she points out in the foreword to her new biography of Oprah Winfrey, Kitty Kelly has spent the last 30 years writing biographies of living icons without their cooperation and independent of their control. Simply put, she's the reigning queen of the unauthorized biography. Upon the announcement, back in 2008, that Kelly's next subject would be Oprah, Chicago Magazine declared an epic cultural showdown, and the book doesn't disappoint. Today I'm going to be speaking with the New York Times number one best-selling author, Kitty Kelly, about her book entitled Oprah, a Biography, which is now out in paperback. Kitty, if you wouldn't mind, just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: I am a writer from Washington, D.C., and I'm sitting down to do this because I want to talk to you about the unauthorized biography and the value of writing one. I have been doing this for almost 30 years. I came to Washington, D.C. to take a, a, a part-time job, or a temporary job, really, for just six weeks working for a United States senator, and I ended up working for about four years on Capitol Hill, and then I went to the Washington Post, where I was the researcher for the editorial page. It was truly a Fascinating job. I'd go into editorial page conferences every day and take notes on what the writers were going to editorialize on and then I'd provide the research. After that I began the career and the career has been as freelance writer ever since.
0: What do you do to writing unauthorized biography in particular?
1: I don't know exactly what led me into it. Perhaps it was the two years working on the editorial page where you had to research a subject, take a stand on it, pierce hypocrisy, try and tell the truth. And that's what I tried to do with biographies. The first one I wrote was on Jacqueline Kennedy on NASA's It was published in 1978. It was called Jackie O. And when I was asked to do it, I didn't want to do it because I had read everything written. There were hundreds of biographies. Well, not hundreds, maybe 45 at the time. And I said to the publisher, I've read everything written about Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis and I just, I just, don't know how you could add anything to it. It's all such fluff. And he said, well, what would you do differently? And I said, well, you'd have to go out and interview people and get them really to tell you something authentic and truthful about their experience with Mrs. Onassis. And that's kind of how I began, I guess. And that book was published, and I followed it up with a book on Elizabeth Taylor, and I was ready not to do it do it again, because they're very hard. They take a lot of time. They take a lot of reporting, a lot of interviewing, and then a lot of writing. But my agent at that time said, well, if you had your choice of any subject to do, who would it be? And I said, well, I'm not going to do it, because it would simply be too hard. But I think it would be fascinating to do... A really good book on Frank Sinatra. So anyway, I ended up doing Frank Sinatra. And after that one, I did the Nancy Reagan book. After that, I did the British Royal Family. Then I did the Bushes, three generational saga on the Bushes. And I thought, I'm finished. I'm finally finished. And there's a real downside to doing a political book in this day and age. But after that, I thought, Oprah, this is it. This is the all-American story. This is a fabulous biography. And yet, I had a very hard time selling it because people were so frightened of Oprah. And I thought, this is going to be ideal in so many ways because after you spend four years writing a book, you really do want someone to read it. And if you write about a Republican, only Democrats will buy. Or if you write about a Democrat, only Democrats will buy. If you write about a Republican, only Republicans will buy. And I thought, no, I don't want to do something that will just sell to red states or blue states. And I thought, Oprah, fabulous, because she's really a political. But that was before she endorsed Barack Obama. So in the end, I ended up writing a book that in part was political.
0: I have to bring you back a bit to Frank Sinatra because you glossed over it, and he did give you a bit of a tussle. Could you talk about writing that book and, and the response to it and the legal problems that arose from it?
1: Oh, absolutely. I wrote Frank Sinatra back in um, 1986, and it took me a long time. But before I had written a word, he sued me, saying that he and he alone had the right to write about his own life and or someone that he authorized. And because he had not authorized me, he was suing me going ahead and it was a suit of several million dollars and it took about a year to fight the lawsuit and in the end Sinatra backed down and he dropped the lawsuit but it was his way I think of sending of sending a press release to the world that he did not want this book written by Kitty Kelly. He wanted to write his own book or have somebody that he could control write the book. Um, I kept working, and it was hard. There's no question about it. I ended up interviewing about 800 people. It took me four years to write that book. But it was a great experience because it sold beautifully. It sold over a million copies in hardback. But I not only had to fight Frank Sinatra's lawyers to write it, in the end I had to fight my own lawyers, my own publisher, because the publisher did not want to print chapter notes, which are a writer's way of giving the reader uh, information about where the sourcing came from. Did it come from another book? Did it come from an interview? Police records? Uh, FOIA reports, where did the information come from? And the publisher's lawyers did not want me to provide chapter notes, and they said it's just going to give Frank Sinatra a roadmap to sue you again. And by that time, I had already gone through a year of litigation with Frank Sinatra, where he backed off. And I didn't think that he would really sue again, but that doesn't satisfy lawyers, I finally said, listen, you cannot write a book in which you call somebody's mother an abortionist unless you provide documentation. You just can't do that. And I said, I'll be more than happy to put all that documentation into the text. No, 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 they said, we don't want that. No, no. So it took me another year to fight the lawyers and get the chapter notes included. So the Sinatra book really was a growing up experience for me as a writer.
0: Do you have any idea what Oprah's response was to the news that you were going to be writing a book about her?
1: Yes, I do. Um, I, I wrote to her. I called her. I wrote her several letters. I said I was doing the book. I wanted her to know as a matter of courtesy. And I asked for an interview. I said I'd be trying to interview as many people as possible. And I did, really. I I interviewed across the board for the Oprah book. I interviewed her father. I interviewed her her Aunt Catherine. I interviewed her cousin. I interviewed co-workers, friends, people she'd gone to school with. I... Of former employees, but it was difficult because Oprah has become so controlling of her life and her image that she makes people who work for her sign confidentiality agreements. And people are frightened. They're very, very frightened to talk. They're frightened to break the confidentiality agreement. Not that much would happen to them, but they think it would. And Oprah is very, very rich. And as many people said to me, listen, I'd love to talk to you, but she's richer than I am, and she can come after me. And litigation costs a lot of money. So she's been able to to control her image because of this.
0: Were there any surprises along the way as you were writing about her or did she turn out to be pretty much who you thought she was when you began the book?
1: No, um, there were a lot of surprises. I really didn't have a preconceived notion about Oprah. I started out full of admiration for her as a woman who has truly succeeded in a white male world. So I started out very positively and I really ended up the same way, but just with more detail and more backstory, Um, stories that I never thought that I could get that were fascinating, Oprah's fascinating, not just as a, uh, a giant of popular culture, but as a businesswoman, as somebody who has made it in the broadcasting industry, and when you write a biography about someone who is still alive, you're really telling the history of your own times. And that's fascinating to to see how timing and luck played in to the ascent of a woman who brought real talent to the table. She really did. She has gifts of communication which have been developed over twenty five years and in a sense We, I, grew up with her, I, you know, we've watched her on television for 25 years, we've watched her change and grow and mature, so it was, it was a learning experience for me, but then I will tell you that almost, every book I've written has been a learning experience.
0: Well, what I'd like to do is kind of just walk through the book a little bit uh, to give readers an idea of what they'll be experiencing when they read it. So can you talk a bit about her childhood and her youth, her her transition from Milwaukee to Kosciuszko, Mississippi, and then on to Nashville?
1: Oprah was born. To this day, she still doesn't know who her father is. She knows who her mother was. And she spent some tormenting years with her mother growing up in Milwaukee she has given us the outlines of her story she's a little girl that was abused by three members of her family she became pregnant at the age of 14 she went to live with her father Vernon Winfrey not her birth father but the man who stepped up to take responsibility and really saved her life um, He moved her to Nashville, Tennessee, and that's... She gave birth to the baby. The baby, that was a little boy who was born and he died several, several days later. And Oprah returned to high school, and her father said to her, this is your second chance. Make it good. And she did. She excelled in high school. She became a speaking champion. Um, she went on to college, and she did that only because her father had insisted she really didn't want to. She wanted to go into radio and then into television. She always had a focus of what she wanted to do, and despite the way she started out with an unwed mother, no money um she always felt that she would become a star. And she didn't let anything get in the way of that focus. And she followed it, first in radio, then in television. And she made her own dream come true. Now, it sounds rather simplistic, because there were a lot of uh, There's a couple of failures along the way, but the failures turned into successes, and when she came to Chicago with her own television show, that was the start of it.
0: You were able to talk to her Aunt Catherine and her, and her father Vernon, correct?
1: Yes, I mm-hmm. did. Um, and interestingly enough, when the book came out, even her family's Spirit of Oprah, her Aunt Catherine... I spent three days with her in Cousliansville, Mississippi, and but when the book was published, Aunt Catherine got so scared that she said she tried to back away from the interviews. Um, And she, I think she was just so frightened of Oprah. And after the book was published, the Aunt Catherine's daughter who would be Oprah's first cousin, Joe Baldwin, stepped forward. And she said, I'll be happy to talk to you now, but I was scared to do it before. And I said, well, why now? Why are you going to talk to me a year later? And she said, because I have tenure now, and Oprah can't make me lose my job. It just shows you the fear that exists even within Oprah's family. And Oprah doesn't seem to be on the surface somebody who would really frighten anybody, but she does.
0: Well, presumably one of the biggest shockers in your book is is that there's quite a lot of sex here, and qu- from quite an early age as well.
1: There's quite a lot of. I'm sorry.
0: A lot of sex here, and also sex, from quite. Did you say? Yes, from quite an early age.
1: Oh uh, <laughs> <For yeah. Oprah. laughs> <laughs> I didn't know if you were saying sex or facts.
0: <laughs> no, there are also a lot of facts. That's not surprising.
1: <laughs> yes, there is a lot of facts. And interestingly, the men in Oprah's life, many of them decided to go on the record with me and talk about it. Um, which you might think would be an ungentlemanly thing for former lovers to do. But Former females love it, uh, do it all the time. So I guess I wasn't that surprised. Um, I was not able to interview Stedman Graham, which is unfortunate. But I did get to a lot of the other men in Oprah's life before Stedman.
0: Did you discuss her romantic relationships a little bit?
1: Well, they've changed over the years. Um, you know, the sexual abuse that she experienced as a young child and the fact of that early pregnancy really left um, left a mark on her. And the boyfriend that she had in high school after these experiences, it was a very, very chaste relationship. She was very religious in those days, and she went to church every Sunday. She is not religious anymore. she probably described herself as spiritual, and she doesn't go to church the way she did when she was living with Bernie Winfrey, living in Nashville, Tennessee. When she moved to Baltimore to take an anchor job with the television station there, she experienced her first real failure. Up until that time, Oprah had always been the first black girl to get this, the first black woman to be appointed that, the first, always the first. And she was the first black woman to become an anchor in Baltimore, which was a really big deal back then. Unfortunately, she was co-anchoring the news, with a man who really didn't like her, and he was beloved in Baltimore, and she got fired, and it was her first failure, but she still had to serve out her contract, and a new station manager came. The station manager said, listen, Oprah, I'd like to put together a talk show like I did in Cleveland, and I think you'd be very good, and she said, please don't do this to me. Please. I have it's too humiliating and at that time it was very humiliating to have to go from the news onto a morning talk show but she did it and she became very very successful and they loved her in baltimore but she experienced another failure because she fell in love with a married man and she really fell in love with him And she had a four-year affair. He still wouldn't leave his wife to marry her. Finally, she got that job offer in Chicago. Knowing that he would never marry her, she decided to take the job offer. But they still kept seeing each other. But the job eventually became more important than the married man. And she built it into everlasting success. Now, I'm pointing out the failures because they're really learning for all of us that Oprah translated those failures into her own successes. And then from Chicago, going national. But at the time that she went national, she also got the role in The Color Purple. And those two things enabled her really, I think, to skyrocket to success. Because all wanted to be a movie star. She didn't want to be a television star. But she couldn't really make it in the movies. She tried once after The Color Purple. She tried with the movie Beloved. She bought it. She starred in it. She produced it. She marketed it like a champion. But the movie just didn't sell. And it was a huge failure for her, she felt. But it wasn't. it didn't detract a bit from the success that she had in television. And that was the success that enabled her to do the movie in the first place. And in the end, after 25 years... She retired from daytime television, talk show television, to buy her own network. And that's what she's doing now. And there are people that are now in 2011 betting against her. And I say don't ever bet against her, (laughs) ever.
0: Let's um, talk a little bit about her place in daytime TV during the 1980s, because it was very much a field that was dominated by white men. And then this black woman came in and just kind of changed the game completely.
1: She did. She changed it. It was dominated really and started intelligently by Phil Donahue. When Oprah came in, she was doing a Jerry Springer down and dirty show. It's hard to believe for those who had just gotten to know Oprah in the last 10 years. But she started out with that kind of a show. And I think that she would admit today that she would be embarrassed by the shows that she was doing then compared to the shows that she's doing now. But she was able to succeed where Phil Donahue couldn't because Oprah was so... She was a woman. And she could talk about buying a bra. She could talk about pantyhose that didn't fit. She could talk about her weight problems and relate to women in a way that Bill Donahue couldn't. And it was that um, response that she was able to ignite with middle-class white females across the country that made her so successful. So she related on a on a gender basis, really, in a way that Donahue couldn't. Do you think
0: that her public battles with her weight were they that important to her connection with her audience?
1: No question. Mm-hmm. No question. The the biggest show that Oprah ever had as far as ratings and audience was the show where she wheeled out a wagon of 67 pounds of lard and said to the audience, this is what I lost. And she had been on what they call a protein-sparing diet for about five months. And the audience watched her get smaller and smaller. and Finally, she came back after a summer off. And she was a size six. And she had on a pair of very tight jeans, a belt, a t-shirt, a turtleneck t-shirt, and boots. And she made her appearance on the air, and she has never had show um got the ratings that her weight show got
0: i feel like the oprah show kind of had three distinct phases because originally it was kind of tabloid topics and then it moved on to celebrities and then it was very much focused around self-improvement and spirituality do you think that's an accurate assessment of, of yes how it i felt?
1: think that's a very mm-hmm. good way of breaking it up um she did in the early years of terribly tabloid shows and then i think after a decade of that she was embarrassed by what she did she also did celebrity shows but she had a hard time with it at first um Probably her toughest celebrity interview, the one that is most embarrassing to her to this day, was the interview that she did with Elizabeth Taylor. And it was a disaster because Elizabeth Taylor, she wouldn't answer Oprah's questions. Oprah tried to be winning and tried to ask very personal questions. And Elizabeth Taylor was going to have none of it. She said, stop being so cheeky. I'm not going to answer those questions. Oprah would ask her something very personal about, are you going to get married again? And Elizabeth Taylor would say, it's none of your business. It was very hard for Oprah to get that interview going. It's fascinating to watch. But now if Oprah did it, she'd have more control. She started her celebrity interviews because she cared. She cares about having the celebrities like her. She cared about bringing them to her audience. And she did very, very well with them, especially interviews with John Travolta and Julia Roberts, Tom Cruise. Um, And then she got heavy into her spirituality she opened one of her shows in a bathtub. Now, I don't know that she'd do that today Mm -hmm. because it would seem (laughs) ill-advised, but she did open one of her shows in a bathtub, practically humming to the spirits saying, all of you should start your day and end your day with a long, long bath. Now, the television critics thought she had just snapped her cap, Um, but her audience had been with her through the tabloid years, through the celebrity years, and now they, too, were ready to get into the paranormal, spiritual light candles and incense years, and they went along with it. And from there Oprah got into self improvement and to being what she calls being your best person. And I think that's the kind of television that she's trying to bring people on her network.
0: Do you have any idea what prompted that shift? Because it's a pretty it was it felt pretty abrupt at the time that all of a sudden it was very more self involved programming.
1: Well, I think it worked for her, Um, and being self-involved has worked for Oprah. Um, She's gotten probably a little bit more self-involved, but, you know, she's become such a strong role model for women especially, and it's women, really, that have made Oprah a success. Um she that's her appeal is to women. To women and maybe gay men. But it's women who have underlined her support. It's a very female chord that she has struck over the years. Which is why I thought as a woman that I would get Oprah in a way that a man might not. Sounds silly, I know, but I think that's true.
0: I think in her life, her, her desire to be a film star kind of sticks out as the one thing that she really wasn't able to do as well as she always wanted. Can you discuss that a little bit?
1: Well, you know, for people who are, Uh, listening to us they're going to say well you're crazy Mm -hmm. she is a success of absolutely monumental proportions after all this is a woman who owns her own company owns her own network she has a net worth of 2.6 b for boy billion dollars what do you mean she's not a success she is a roaring success but she couldn't become a success as the movie star that she wanted to be. And after the failure of Beloved, Oprah really went into a depression, and she has admitted that. She said she went into a deep depression. At that time, she fell off her her diet, her exercise, that had been so much a part of her life, and she just started eating. And, you know, she's never recaptured that, that good size 10, size 12 that she was at the time that worked so well for her. Oprah's now probably a size 18, a size 20, and she's in her late 50s. Chances are she's not going to get back to that. And that was because of the failure of Beloved. She had invested so much of herself and her own money. Oprah spent over $80 million on that movie. She really thought that this was the movie that was going to become a huge critical and commercial success. It was a tough movie. It's a tough book. It was written by Toni Morrison. Oprah bought the book for a million dollars. And she spent years trying to develop it, years getting a screenwriter and a director who she thought could really bring, bring it to the screen. And it just didn't work. It didn't work. People didn't like it. People didn't flock in to see it. And after investing that much of yourself, you can understand that you would be depressed when it didn't become a success. (laughs) And since then, she really hasn't tried to get back into films. But that's okay. She's still going to get her walk, I mean, her star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, Um, but she's not going to get it as an actress as much as she's going to get it as a television star and yet you really do have to be an actress to have a a daytime talk show Um, so she has shown her acting ability just not on the big screen
0: Um, two of the most important relationships of her adult life are really the relationship with Stedman and with Gail can you discuss those a little bit
1: well, they're both best friend relationship. I also think that her relationship with Maya Angelou has formed her in many, many respects. I think that Maya Angelou has been her lodestar, her, her mentor, the kind of woman that she looked up to and wanted to be. Gail King has been her very best girlfriend. And Steadman Graham has been the solid male in her life that she really never had, I don't think. You know, they announced their engagement back in 1990 or 91, and you and I are talking in the year 2011. (laughs) He still lives with her. They're still together. It's still a good relationship, but I don't think they'll ever marry. and the reason for that is that Oprah doesn't want to marry he's a rather traditional man in many ways Um, they've grown together in that he's learned how to finally cope with her stardom and the fact of her dominance in popular culture but married, he'd have different expectations of her than she would want to meet. I mean, he is traditional. He would want a traditional wife. And he's never going to get that from Oprah. And she is never going to sacrifice her financial status, especially in a community property state like California. So they will never get married. She believes that they will be together always, and I think she's probably right. The living situation right now in Santa Barbara is Stedman, Oprah, and Gail. Gail has her own room, her own uh, life with them together in Santa Barbara and in New York and in Chicago, and they travel together. So it works very well for them.
0: Um, In the book, this is a bit of a transition, but in the book, you do an excellent job of breaking down what happened between Oprah and James Frey, which was one of the biggest literary takedowns of the last decade, and also kind of an oddly dissonant episode in her public image. Can you go into that a bit?
1: You mean with James Frey?
0: With the writer, yes.
1: With the writer. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: That was really something, um, because he wrote a book in which he said it was a memoir in which there were facts that were made up and it was not. And it became a monumental success because of Oprah, A Million Little Pieces. And then the press began looking into James Fry's background and found that much of the book was made up. Now, Oprah knew this. She already knew it because there was a a, a reporter in Minnesota who had reported the facts. But she thought the book was so strong that she went with it anyway. And then when the New York Times started coming down hard on her in the Washington Post, and and by the New York Times, I mean Frank Rich and Maureen Down. In the Washington Post, Richard Richard Cohen had written a column, and she just couldn't stand that. So she got James Fry back, told him to go on Larry King and to save himself, and that she would call in later and let him know if he'd done a good job or if he had not. And that's what happened. He did go on Larry King. Oprah told him to take his mother with him because he'd look more sympathetic. He did that. Oprah called in, and she stood strong behind Fry in his book. Well, then the New York Times really piled on him. And she had him back on her show and really laced into him for lying. And yet, and, and she came down on him very, very hard. Um, it was kind of a chink in the armor of St. Oprah because it there was a dissonance. This was a woman. Who was chewing up a man? And she seemed to go overboard with it. And her audience wasn't used to seeing Oprah like this. We were used to seeing Oprah as good and warm and enveloping. This was another Oprah, and it it, it just didn't sit well. So at the very very end, when she was finally going to go off the air. She had James Fry back, and she in a sense apologized to him for what she had done to him. And I don't think she realized really what the full weight of having Oprah come down on you negatively can do to someone. But it was quite traumatizing, and yet Fry really did bring it on himself. Um, But it was a fascinating show. If you you watch the first show and then the second show, it's really interesting Mm -hmm. to see the difference in both personalities.
0: In contrast to that, how important do you think her support was to Obama during the election of
1: 2008? I think her support of Obama was absolutely crucial. I think that Oprah brought a support to Obama at that time when he was running against Hillary Clinton that he couldn't have gotten from any other person. Oprah brought Caroline Kennedy on board. She brought Maria Shriver on board. That brought Teddy Kennedy on board and that United Democrats to be behind Obama and not Hillary Clinton. Um, it was a it was a brave thing for her to do in the very, very beginning, but she believed in Obama and she will be out there again for it. Make no mistake about it. She will be out campaigning as hard as she can. So I think her support was crucial and I think that President Obama wouldn't, would say the same
0: thing. This is sort of a big picture question, but it kind of ties in also because I guess this could be part of her legacy, the election of Obama. But what do you view as her legacy overall?
1: She sees her legacy as the school in South Africa, the school for girls that she started, the school devoted to leadership and That has really been not quite the success that she had hoped it would be. She really wanted that to be her legacy, and that, too, has had some failures and setbacks. Um, There's been child sexual abuse, which, in a sense, is almost like a Greek tragedy because Oprah would never wish sexual abuse, on anybody, and yet the sexual abuse that haunted her as a little girl has also haunted many of the little girls at her school. Um, she has tried to step in and ensure that it doesn't happen anymore, but many of the people that she put in charge, not many, but two or three of the teachers, um, use the young children in her care, and that was quite a fall-up to her. I think Oprah Winfrey's greatest achievement, really, was to step forward and talk about sexual abuse. She stepped forward to talk about it when it was a taboo. Nobody would talk about it. She stepped forward to say when she had someone on her show, and and she probably did it for ratings, according to some of the people that were working for her, but she nevertheless did it, and she continued to talk about sexual abuse. It's a theme of many of her shows over the years. She's really tried to shine a light there, and I think that's going to be her biggest legacy, for standing up, Shining a light in a really dark corner. And you and I are sitting here in 2011, and it's still sexual abuse and sexual harassment is still very, very much a part of our society. Oprah has been talking about it for 25 years, trying to do something about it. I think that's her biggest legacy.
0: With the publication of this book, you experienced a great deal of media pushback just because Oprah is in the media and has a great deal of influence there. And that happened a lot more than with the other books, right?
1: Yes, it did. Um, People, uh, by people, I mean, there was pushback from Larry King who said, no, 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 I won't have Kitty on the show to talk about this book. Although I've been on Larry King so many times, um, But he wouldn't do it because he said he didn't want to offend Oprah. And Barbara Walters said the same thing. She said, no, 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 I won't have her on The View, because Oprah would be angry. And these these were very powerful people in the media at the time. Um, Barbara Walters still is, Larry King is not. And they just didn't want to offend Oprah, and that's understandable. So, I haven't, you know, I'm not complaining because I was on the Today Show and I was on other shows to talk about the book. So I did have a chance to say this is a biography of Oprah Winfrey, the most comprehensive one that you'll come across. Really, it's amazing when you think about it. Oprah has been a huge star in America for 25 years and there had never really been a big biography done about her because people were so scared
0: the first amendment doesn't come up often in discussions of biography, but I think it's particularly important in the case of unauthorized biographies. And you've been a very vocal advocate of First Amendment rights. Can you talk about your experience with experiences with this and why you think it's an important an area of importance to biographers?
1: Yes. Unauthorized does not mean untrue. Unauthorized means that you are doing the book without the person's control, without their permission, in a sense. Because if you do an authorized book, that means nine times out of ten, you give up editorial control. And that means that you are going to have to tilt your sail the way the sailor wants you to tilt it. And that isn't the way I want to write the book. Um, it's scary to do it the way I do it, because if you alienate or offend someone like a Frank Sinatra, you're going to get sued. Um, but It seems to be the most honest way to panel somebody's life story. Celebrity seems to come with a a corrosive sense of self-entitlement. And they, celebrities, want you to write the book the way they want it. And the repeated lies become a part of of history in a sense, not necessarily the truth. Now... When I wrote the book on Nancy Raven, there were many people that were afraid to talk. And understandably so. They were afraid of an IRS audit. Many of them worked in the White House. They worked in the government. They didn't want to lose their jobs. Uh, Frank Sinatra, there was more of a, a mafia fear. They were afraid that they'd lose their lives, that they might be beat up. With Oprah, it was different. The fear was that they wouldn't be part of her empire. They wouldn't be part of her wonderful, glamorous circle. They wouldn't be invited to her parties. Barbara Walters wanted to stay her friend. Larry King wanted to stay her friend. So it would be very hard for them to have me on their shows and Ask me questions that may or may not have put Oprah in a positive light. I do believe in the unauthorized biography. I do believe it's the best way to write somebody's life story. Um, It doesn't, it is not the only way, but I think it's the best way.
0: Well, thank you so much for talking with us today about Oprah, a biography, which is now out in paperback. Any idea who you'll be writing about next?
1: I have, I have a book coming out next fall in September of 2012. You and I have just spent an hour talking about the virtues of an unauthorized biography, and that is the kind of biography that usually pierces penetrates, if you will, a public myth. The book that I have coming out next year doesn't do that. It almost perpetuates a public myth. The book is called Capturing Camelot, and I am writing a book about President Kennedy's favorite photographer and the photographs that he took, how he got them. He, His name was Stanley Tredick. He took the famous, iconic picture of John John playing under the president's desk. The photographer was one of my best friends in life, and I took care of him for the last few years of his life. He left me his Marine Corps trunk, his Marine Corps locker, and inside of it, I didn't open it for many years because I had once asked him, what he had in the Marine Corps locker. I said to him, Stanley, what do you have in that trunk? And he said, new pictures. So I never opened it, a long time. And when I did open it, I found the letters that he had saved from President Mrs. Kennedy about the pictures that he had taken. I found memos that he had written to them, to himself, to his editors about those photographs. And I was able to put together a book on the 50th anniversary of the Kennedy presidency, giving you the backstory of how those pictures came to be. And Stanley loved President Kennedy, and I love Stanley, so this is sort of a love story to a photographer and the pictures that he took.
0: How exciting. Thank you so much for being here with us today.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Kelly is the author of eight books, five of them New York Times number one bestsellers. Her latest, Oprah, biography is now on paperback. I'm Oline Eaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening.